I don't know if you guys ever felt like it was um, encouraging uh, for us to, to see someone that actually has changed. Because I think so many of our, uh, our lives, when we think about change or wanting to transform, wanting to be like Christ, I think sometimes that, that seems so far away for us that we start to lose hope. I don't know if you guys have been there. That it's so hard to do what Jesus did. It's so hard to live like Jesus did. It's so hard to think and, and, and kind of walk this life the way Jesus did. But it gives me hope when I see someone on this earth or, or we see someone that's not God, not Jesus, that has actually transformed, actually become somebody completely different. It gives me hope. It, it reminds me that God can take any man and any woman and make us more like him. There's a man here uh, by the name of Apostle Paul who, who wrote Romans. Many of you guys already know this, but he wrote Romans, but he wasn't always this apostle growing up. He wasn't always a super uh, good Christian, or, or he wasn't always like Jesus in, uh, in much of his life. He actually was completely opposite. He actually persecuted the body of Christ. He persecuted Christians. He was an enemy of God, not a friend of God. He was an enemy of Jesus. He, he, he would point out people that were followers of the way, followers of Jesus, and he would want them stoned to death. He would want to get rid of them from the face of the earth. And yet now we find him as a man who wrote more than half of the New Testament. This is a man who is suggesting, not just suggesting to us that there is this possibility of change, but what this writer is telling us is that there is a reality of change, and he's writing from personal experience. He's writing from a place. He's not just saying, hey, guys, I think that we can change if this happens. He's actually saying, this is what's happened to me. He's actually encouraging us from a place in which he's experienced real change. He's been transformed. And he's kind of walking us through how he got there. He's walking us through how he's not perfect, but he's in this amazing process of seeing even his own life change, maybe even day after day, day by day. And so he, he's, he's encouraging us, and he's saying that transformation is, is not only possible, but it's a reality because he's experienced it. And this is what he's trying to say to us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And the way he arrives at this changed life, the way he arrives at this transformation is not by telling the church, not by telling the church in Rome, or not even telling us today, hey, guys, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to behave. Here's what you need to change. It doesn't begin there. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I love what the, uh, actually, the, the NIV translates. Uh, he, he says, um, the word of God says in the uh, NIV version, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy. So he's going to arrive at this place in which he's going to uh, arrive at a place where there's this transformation that's going to take place, a change in our life, but he doesn't kind of jump to that. He begins with trying to get us to the place of viewing something, trying to get us to a place in which we can see something and to be in a place where in light of this, there's going to be change. And what he's saying is, in view of God's mercy, he spends 11 chapters in the book of Romans 
before he gets to this passage in Romans 12. 11 chapters talking about God's love, talking about God's plan, God's sovereignty, God's goodness, and God's mercy. And then and he, he begins there, and then he begins to open this window for us in Romans 12 and says, this is how we change, by God's mercy. We change by having this correct view and this view of God's mercy. I think for a lot of us, we tend to change our lives by just focusing on what we need to do. Say, man, well, well, now that I believe in Jesus, I guess this is what I have to do. Or I guess this is what I have to stop doing. But Paul does not begin there. The message for Paul here is that the transformed life has more to do with what you view than what you actually do. What Paul is saying is that the transformed life has more to do with what you view, what you see in light of, than what you actually do. So the NIV says, in view of God's mercy. So the question for us is, has that been our view? What's right in front of us? What, what is our mind full of? What is our mind captivated by? What has taken our thoughts these days? And Paul is saying, if we want to arrive at the changed life, if we want to arrive at the transformed life, we have to have a correct view. We have to have uh, this thing in front of us. And he's saying it's the mercy of God in light of the mercy of God. In view of the mercy of God, we're going to change. The view changes everything. I don't know if you guys ever played this game when you were a kid. And and I think as I share this story, I realize that it's going to probably date me a little bit. And I'm going to probably feel a little bit older than some of you guys. But uh, when I was a kid, uh, and, and, and my family used to go on these road trips. This is before tablets, before iPads. I don't know if you were a kid and had iPads. Um, but we, this is before iPads or tablets. Uh, this is before color tablets. This is before black and white tablets. This is before Game Boy. If you know what Game Boy is, then you're kind of in my generation, right? right? From the 80s, I guess. And uh, this is before Game Boy. But I remember as a, as a small kid, maybe about five, six years old, when we would go on a road trip, right, which is maybe like an hour-long trip, but it just in the car, just like bored out of your mind. And then I would, I would find myself playing this weird game in the backseat of the car where I would look out the window and I would try to find an airplane, you guys ever um, done this before? You look for an airplane, and then, and then when you actually spot an airplane, you try to block the airplane, and you block it by, you actually, by, by actually lifting up a finger. You guys ever do this? You guys are like, dude, this guy's strange. <laughs> this guy's so weird. I, I, would, I would literally be so bored in the back of my car, you know, and, and I'm probably like in kindergarten, first grade, and, you know, this is so no Game Boy, no iPad to you know, uh, keep me entertained. And so I would have to entertain myself and come up with games myself. So I would look out a window and just look for airplanes or a helicopter or something in the sky. And when I would see an airplane, I would get so happy. And and the, the game is to see how many of them I can block. And I would just put up a finger, right? And I would just put it up and I would just put it right over the airplane. And somehow, magically, the airplane would disappear by my finger. Anybody do this before, right? Just me. It's, well, if try it. It actually works. Find an airplane in the sky and just put up your finger right over the airplane and somehow magically this airplane disappears. My mom actually told me though the story of um, when we first uh, went to the airport or my first time being at the airport. I was, I was around that same age, around five years old. And, uh, and my family, we, uh, it was my first time, I guess, first time, you know, 
in my knowledge, being able to go uh, on an airplane, and we had to go to Korea for my, uh, my grandmother's, I think, 60th birthday. And so I remember uh, my mom telling me the story of when I went to LAX, and, and we were at the airport, and we're at the terminal, and we're at the gate, and we're now waiting to, be, uh, to get on board. And, and she, said, she said she remembers me as a small little kid running to the glass window where the airplane is, and she says, I was so glued. I had my, both my hands on this glass window. You guys ever see kids do this? Both hands on the glass window, just staring at this huge thing called the airplane, and, and she just said, you just would not want to get away from me. You just, you, were, you kept looking at it, just amazed, right? You, you were just in awe almost, almost like you're worshiping this thing. You had both hands like this, right? And, and you're just looking at this thing, and you're just in awe because you've never th- seen something so glorious, something so big. And she would remind me, she says, James, that's the same airplane that you used to block with your finger. And as, a, as I'm, I'm older now, so I, I realize that's very true. It's the same airplane. The airplane that I used to block with my finger is the airplane that I would have both my hands in the air and just be amazed at. The question I have is what changed? Is it the airplane? Or was it my view? So the airplane... hasn't changed. That airplane in the sky that looks so small that I can actually cover with my finger is actually pretty big. You guys know that, right? Okay. That airplane, as you get closer and closer and closer, there aren't enough fingers on your hand to cover its bigness. And so what changed is not so much the actual object. What changed was my view. And I realized that this airplane, as I got closer and closer and closer, it became more and more amazing. And I just wonder, as I think about this passage, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view, right? In view of God's mercy, which has not changed, God's mercy, it's not like it fluctuates, like it's, it's, it's big one day, it's amazing one day, but then it's so small another day. God's mercy has not changed 2,000 years ago, has not changed yesterday, has not changed today. It will be the same even tomorrow. This mercy that is so glorious and so weighty and so beautiful and magnificent and praiseworthy has not changed. So the question is, what will? What, what will change and what could change is our view. And I just wonder so, so much for, for some of us. I just wonder if for some of us, we've kind of distanced ourselves from God. And so God has become this small thing that's kind of far out there. And we think God is not that big. God is not that close. And he's so far out there. I wonder for some of us if we've just kind of put up our hand and kind of blocked him out of the picture. And said, see, God's not there. But I just want to assure you that God is there and God is still glorious and his mercy is still present. And you know what Paul is saying? He's inviting you. He's inviting you. Don't just put one finger up, but put both hands up and surrender as you come closer and closer as you get a view of God's mercy. Paul is saying, get a picture 
get closer and see how wonderful and how beautiful he is that he did not spare his own son for you. And Paul is saying, come and, and view his mercy because this view will change you. This view will change you. You guys ever been guilty of purchasing something for a better view or paying more money for a better view? Anybody still have a black and white TV? We probably all have a color TV, and not just a color TV, but HD TV, right? Or if you guys ever go watch a, a sports event, a basketball game, football game, a soldier stadium, or, or the BTS concert, or, <laughs> or, you know, a Bears game, you guys know that there's a price that's need to be, that needs to be paid in order to have a closer view. Why? Because that view will change your whole experience, Right? Like if you're a, a football fan and you want to go watch the Bears, there's a difference from being on the field and being at the very top in the nosebleeds. It'll change you. It'll change your experience. But there's a price. If you want to go watch a play, if you want to go, go watch Hamilton, you guys know that there's a cost to that, that you don't get just to sit anywhere you want, but the closer you get or, or the better view you want, there's a price to be paid. And here's the good news of the gospel, that when it comes to viewing God's mercy, God has paid the price. You don't have to earn this view. You don't have to change yourself to get this view. It's not a reward for us. What God is saying is, I've paid the price so that you don't have to stand in the nosebleeds. I've paid the price so that you can come to the feet of Jesus at no cost to you. And he's saying, Paul is saying, when you view that, when you've seen that, you will not be the same. He's saying, this view will change you. And part of this view, guys, of viewing God's mercy is why we pray, isn't it? So that our eyes can see Jesus more clearly. And part of this view is reading the scriptures, isn't it? So that we can see Jesus more clearly. And part of the reason of fasting is so that we can see Jesus more clearly. And all of these things that we call spiritual disciplines seems like it's just a legalistic burden, something that we do. But prayer and scripture reading and all the, the activities that discipline us and shape us and form us are, are not so that we can just say, look at all that we've done. All of these things are so we can actually get a better view. And in that, we can change. I want to read to you something that um, Pastor Eugene Peterson says about these spiritual practices, about reading the Bible and, and praying and, and fasting and solitude and Sabbath and all of these things. He says that spiritual practices um, for the Pharisees was all about cleaning the dirty window so that they can say, I have a clean window. But then he says, that for the New Testament church, the point of spiritual disciplines is not to say, I have a clean window. It's so that we can get a better view. So the Pharisees would memorize scripture. The Pharisees would do all the right things. The Pharisee would be to the T, keeping the law and, and, and cleaning their hands. And they would do all of that so that they can say, I have a clean window. But he's saying the way of Jesus is very different. He's saying for the New Testament church, for church of the beloved, for me, for you, for those in Christ, for those who have been 
brought from death to life, those who have been given the garments of grace, what Paul is saying here, what Eugene Peterson is trying to explain is that for us, the New Testament church, when we apply the spiritual disciplines to our life, it's not to say, now I have a clean window. It's to say, now I have a better view. That through it, I can see God's mercy for me. Right? And I think we need to understand that when, we, when Paul is saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God or in view of God's mercy, that this mercy is just not an attribute of God, but this mercy is very personal to you. This mercy is very personal to me. Like if you told someone who has a cold and you say, yeah, I, I can connect you with someone that has some medicine and they can, they can, they can get you well the next day. For that person, if they're not acknowledging that they're sick, if they're not acknowledging that I actually need help, if, they're not, if they don't have any awareness that they need some kind of help, then they, that person has no value. That help has no value. So what Paul is saying is not, hey, check out who God is. Look at his mercy. What Paul is trying to say is, look at God's mercy for me. Look at God's mercy for us. He's saying it has infinite value because why? This is not just something that's separate and only for God. This actually has something that affects us. His mercy changes us. His mercy in light of our mess, right? His mercy is on our behalf. He withheld the Father's anger that was for us so that he can give us the Father's love. That was mercy. It's for us. See, guys, if we are not convinced of our sin, we will never be changed by his grace. You guys see that? If we just look at God's mercy and the cross and say, oh, that's, that's awesome. What a good man he was. What a, what, what a tender, loving Savior he is to some. It will never change you. But when you see God's mercy and you get up close and both hands are up and say, wow, God, you're glorious. You did not spare your own son for me. And when you see that his mercy was actually for me too, it begins to change you. And you begin to be convinced of your sin, but you're also changed by his grace. I believe it's Thomas Watson that said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. See, what happens at the mercy of God, at the cross, at the feet of Jesus, is that we see how ugly sin actually is. We see how bitter sin actually is. And at the view of God's mercy, we see sin becoming bitter and Christ becoming sweet. See, the first response to a transformed life is, is, friends, for us to see how deep the Father's love is for me, that a holy God who knew what I did yesterday did not destroy me today. That a holy God who knew my thoughts yesterday did not destroy me today. That a holy God who knew your thoughts and your deeds yesterday did not destroy you today. That's good news. Friends, that's the mercy of God. That he became our mediator. That he took the Father's wrath so that he can give us the Father's love. I had a friend um, <clears throat> uh, in high school, 
And when we went off to college, we kind of, uh, you know, had separate friends. And so I kind of lost contact with this particular friend from high school. And I think it was about our third year of college. And, and this friend had gone off to college a few hours away. But I got, through, I got news through the grapevine that this particular friend was in the hospital kind of out of nowhere. You know, didn't have any uh, a long-term illness or nothing like that. But just was in the hospital, admitted. And so I'd heard about it. And then uh, about a week later, I heard that she's still in the hospital. And things were getting a lot more serious and, and a lot more life-threatening. And so a couple of her friends, we actually drove down to see her at the hospital. And, and what uh, the doctors and her family was telling us that was, and, this is, and she's only about 20 at that point, the doctors are telling us that her kidneys are beginning to fail. And so she actually started to lose her, uh, her vision. Uh, and she's only, she was only 20 years old. She started to lose her vision. Her kidneys were failing. Uh, they put her on, on dialysis. There was no guarantee uh, that she would become better. And what they needed to do was find a, a transplant for her kidney. And so she was on the, a donor list. And so for some time, I don't know how long, but they were looking for a, 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 a match. They were looking for a donor. And, and for some time, they couldn't find an exact match. And so they asked the immediate family, can we run some tests with you guys? And, and they all did. And it turns out that her mom was a, an exact match for her. And so... Her mom um, willingly, you know, without a doubt, you know, and, 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 I, and I'm not just saying this because it's Mother's Day, but it just, I think about the sacrifice of moms, I think about the sacrifice of, um, of others on your behalf that you didn't necessarily earn. But this mom, without, without any hesitation, of course, right, willing to give her kidney to save her daughter's life. And I remember our, uh, <clears throat> our, our friends were around the hospital and we saw her literally Uh, just days before the, um, the, the kidney transplant, and we just saw her, like, literally, it looked like she was dying. It looked like her, her life was being just taken out of her this moment after moment, hour by hour. And then after the transplant, she came back and just, like, a completely different person. There was life in her, there was just this life, you know, that you can just see her, she was back to her, her own self. And, and because of this, Uh, her, her mom giving her her kidney to her, she was literally almost brought from death to life. You know, I saw her in one moment where she was literally dying, and now she's fully alive. And, and what's funny is that every time I see her now, you know what I think about? Is I think about her mom. Like, I can't, like, when I see her, I can't help but to think and be reminded of her mom. Like, I don't just see her, I see her mom in her. And I thought, that's the Christian life. That when I see another brother, another sister in Christ, that I don't just see that brother, but I see Christ. Does that make sense? That when I see another sister in Christ, I don't just see that sister, but I see Christ. I can't help but to think of how Christ has now changed you and brought you from death to life and this is the picture of what God's mercy does it changes you so much so that when somebody sees you they can no longer just see you but when they see you they actually see Christ in you they actually see his mercy upon you and so Paul says <clears throat> in view of God's mercy, by the mercies of God. It says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, when it comes to change, isn't it true that one of the first things that we think about is I have to, I have to perform something, I have to do something. 
Paul doesn't say that. He says, in view of God's mercy, just present yourself. He's not saying perform. He's saying present. What he's saying is just show up. He's saying in view of God's mercy, show up and let God do something in you. He's saying in view of God's mercy, now don't go running off trying to do this do-it-yourself product to change your behaviors, to manage your sin. He's not saying go perform and act like a Christian. He's saying in view of God's mercy, now show up. Now present yourself to God and let's see what God does in and through you. And isn't that true that so much of our change, we want to do our own self? Paul doesn't say that. He says, present yourself. Show up. Come to the altar. Come to God and be a living sacrifice. To offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. In my early days, I used to think that sacrifice was something, uh, always something external. You know, because I, I, I might have grown up in the more of a legalistic Christian culture where sacrifice this and sacrifice that, give up this and give up that. I, you know, I, I was challenged even at times to give up secular music or, or, or give up this. And, you know, we, we used to do this thing in youth group where, where we used to bring all of our secular CDs, right? This is before MP3s and downloads. We used to have this, you know, round thing called CDs and came with a case and we used to bring all of our non-Christian, you know, uh, music, and we used to go to the campfire at retreats, and we used to burn it and say, we're going to be holy now, we're going to be, we want to be like Jesus now, we, we did that thinking that that's what God wanted us to do, we thought that's what sacrifice meant, it was this external thing, but I realized that, that that's not the point of what Paul's trying to say, he's saying, Show up before God and give him your ears, give him your mouth, give him your hands, give him your feet, give him your mind, give him your heart. What I realize is that God is not saying sacrifice stuff. He didn't want the external stuff. What I realize is that God wanted me. God was not interested in my music or the movies that I watched. What God was interested was in me. He wanted all of me to present ourselves before God is that God wants my ears so that He can teach me how to listen to him. That God wanted my mouth so that he can use it to bless other people, to lift up others, to pray for others, to worship, to be a messenger of the gospel. To present myself and to offer myself to God is that that he he wants my hands, not to to say, here's what I'm giving up, but so that he can use my hands to now serve other people. He wants my feet so that he can take me places to share the love of God and to share the gospel message. He wants my mind so that, that he can uh, capture my mind and he can have my thoughts and he can, that I can love the Lord with even all of my mind. And he wants my heart so that he can place his desires and his affections in me. And Paul's saying, it's in view of God's mercy that we do this. It's not in view of James 2.0. It's not in view of I just want a better life. It's in view of God's mercy that we present ourselves to God. That I, God, I give you my ears, I give you my mouth, I give you my hands, I give you my feet, I give you my mind, and I give you my heart. As we offer ourselves to God, we become this living sacrifice. And I don't know if you've ever read Romans 12, 1 through 2. I know you've probably, many of you guys have heard this passage before, but I don't know if you guys ever stumbled upon those words in verse 1, living sacrifice, and thought to yourself, and isn't that an oxymoron? Living sacrifice. You guys ever 
thought that before? Because Paul, this, the, the writer of this particular passage, very well knows. He knows the Old Testament sacrificial law. He knows how this works. He knows that every uh, goat, every lamb, every dove that was sacrificed, he knows that none of them made it out the temple. There was never a goat that was brought as a sacrifice and left saying, that was a close one. They almost got me. Paul knows that when there was a sacrifice in the Old Testament, it had to die. That sacrifice never made it alive. And the thing about the Old Testament sacrifice is that we real that we see now is that these daily sacrifices that were presented to God on behalf of their sins were never enough. Right? It's, it's pointing to this mercy of God that he was the one and final atonement, the one sacrificial lamb that covered all your sin. He knew that these, these doves and these animals and that were sacrificed, he knew that that we are so wretched and so broken and so sinful that there was not never a goat and never a, uh, an earthly lamb that, that would cover all of your sins. It, it might have covered one sin, but it never covered all your sin. He knew that every sacrifice that was made never made it alive. So then why would Paul use this term living sacrifice because sacrifice don't live? Why would he call us a living sacrifice? And here's why. The only way you and I can be a living sacrifice if there was a sacrifice before us that covered all your sin so that by the time we get to the altar, we can be a sacrifice that gets to live. See, on behalf of us, 2,000 years ago, there was a sacrifice on your behalf, on my behalf that, that didn't just cover one sin or one person's sin. There was a sacrifice that covered all our sin. So that those who follow after him as a sacrifice did not have to die, but now get to live. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, you can now be a living sacrifice. You can present yourselves to God and have life. That's God's mercy. Paul is saying that's how we change. To present ourselves to God in view of his mercy as a living sacrifice. And then he goes on, he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Which is your spiritual worship at the end of verse 1. Spiritual worship. That word spiritual sounds very mystical, doesn't it? That God, in view of your mercy, in view of your, your glorious grace, and in view of your mercy that was that, uh, of withholding your anger and giving me your love and forgiving me of all my sin, in view of all that, I present myself before you as a living sacrifice and doing this as my spiritual worship, as if it's, it's, it's something that's just kind of in this mystical realm. And, and I want to just bring us back to a, the original word that Paul uses here. The word spiritual is just the, one of the English translations. The original Greek word Paul used is the Greek word logikos. Logikos, which is where we derive the English word logical. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, when you have seen the mercy of God for you, 
He's saying to present yourself fully to God as a living sacrifice. He's saying this. He's saying it's not like something elite or mystical. You know what he's saying? He's saying when you've seen the mercy of God and you come before God saying, God, have all of me because you did not spare yourself from me. He's saying that is a logical response. Does that make sense? What he's saying is that is actually the only reasonable response to one who gave himself fully to you, that we would give ourselves fully to him. What he's saying is this. He's saying if you have seen the mercy of God and what God has done on our behalf when we didn't earn it, He's saying what would not be logical is that we just come to church and give God one hour or two hours a week and just kind of be nice throughout the week and give some offering. He's saying that is not a reasonable or logical response. He's saying that, what he's saying is that wouldn't make sense almost to say, I don't think they've seen the mercy of God. Why, how, how can someone see something so glorious and so amazing like a little kid at LAX has seen a, this huge airplane for the very first time, has no words, speechless, hands in the air? How can that kid not be amazed? Paul is saying, how can someone who's seen the mercy of God not be changed? He said, how can someone who's seen the mercy of God just decide to sing some songs And say, God, that's my spiritual act of worship. He's saying, no. When you give your whole self to God, he's saying, you're not doing anything out of the ordinary. He's saying, you're doing something reasonable. For example, on this Mother's Day, if you told your mom today or later today, if you say, Mom, I love you with all my heart. Thank you for everything you've did. Thank you for giving birth to me. Thank you for... You know, wiping me and clothing me and, and feeding me in all those years. And hopefully they're not doing that now, but like a long time ago. And, and your mom's response is, well, that's cool. You would, you would kind of step back and say, mom, did you hear what I said? I said, I love you with all my heart. Oh, that's cool. That's not a reasonable response. If you're married here and you looked at your spouse and you said, hon, I love you. They're like, Thanks. It's it's like, what? It's not a reasonable response. Does that make sense? What Paul is saying is, if if you've seen the mercy of God, your response is not just thank you, God, and sing some songs. Your response is, God, have all of me. He's saying that's the most reasonable response to a God who did not spare himself to us. In view of God's mercy, present yourselves. Offer yourselves as your most reasonable reasonable response to worship. And then he goes on in verse 2. He says, says, do not be conformed, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world world. That Greek word uh, for world is, is really Paul's talking about this particular age. He's talking about the, the culture. He's talking about the, the currents of the culture, the current flow of things, uh, what our current or culture pulls us into. And so what he's saying is don't fall into the currents and the flow of this age, of the society, of, uh, of, of where we live, of where you are. Don't fall into it. Don't, 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 don't be deceived by it. He says do not be conformed to 
it. And that word, to, do not be conformed, is, is passive. He's saying that it's not that you are intentionally trying to follow the world or intentionally trying to be like the world. He's saying it's just going to happen if your mind is not set somewhere else, is what he's saying. He's saying if your mind is not set on the mercy of God, you are going to be passive. Just, you're not even going to be in control of it. You will be conformed to the age, to the patterns of the world, to the currents of our culture is what he's saying. And can I, can I say this to us, church, that you know, for those of us that live here in, in Chicago, that just by living in Chicago, we are being trained, uh, transformed and changed into the image that is Chicago. Did you guys know that? Just by, I could even make it more specific, that just by living in downtown, you and I are being changed into the image that is downtown. Because we don't look exactly like people that live in other parts of the world. We're starting to just become more and more like each other passively because our minds are not set somewhere else. We're being formed there, there's, there's a discipleship that is happening that we didn't even sign up for. But every message in the world is forming us, changing us, transforming us. Unless our minds are somewhere else. So Paul is saying, do not be conformed by the currents of our culture but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that, that we would let God take a hold of our mind, to let God take a hold of our thoughts. Why? Because the gospel must be worked in before it can be worked out. The gospel must be worked in you and even your thoughts. Because this, this idea of change is not to manage your sins or to manage your behaviors. This this. This idea of change is inside out where you are formed and you are changed from the inside. Your thoughts are changed. How many of you guys know that if there's going to be a change in me, there must be a change of mind? If there's going to be a change in me, there must be a change of mind. It's not just change of behavior. There must be a change of how I used to think, but in light of God's mercy, how I now think. There's got to be a change of mind in terms of how I saw others, but in light of God's mercy, how I now see others. There's a, there's a change of mind that happens before there's a change in us. Transformation does not happen because you decide to change. It doesn't happen because you decide to transform. It happens because of the effect of something else upon your life. So Paul says, be transformed. And isn't that crazy? You ever read that and think, be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Not be transformed by what you do, but rather what you think. Be transformed not by your change of actions or behavior, but be transformed by what your mind is full of. It makes us ask the question, and I want to ask you today, church, what has your mind been full of? As you think about this past week, and I, and I confess, you know, my mind's not always on the mercy of God, which then takes me away from the kind of life of, that God wants me to live. 
My mind has been all and scattered in all different kinds of places, but what Romans 12:1, Paul is saying to us as one who has transformed, as one who has changed, is he's asking us the question, friends, where has our mind been lately? Where has your mind been lately? What is your mind set on lately? Because where your mind is set on is your mindset. Your mindset is, it's all about my career. Your mindset is, it's all about this. It's all about that. Where is your mind? What is your mind full of? What are you mindful of? Paul is saying that God actually desires to do a deep work even in our minds. Do you remember the verse, the greatest commandment when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, strength, and mind? And how loving of a God we have that he's not just interested in changing our behavior. He actually forms and shapes our mind. And the way transformation works, it's not like, God, it's not like we're like this Lego piece or Lego pieces, and, and God's going to just take out one block and put in a different block and take off one old thing and put on a new old thing. The way I see transformation is, 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 is we're more like God's Play-Doh. And by that I mean he's pressing into us. He's pushing us. He's, he's molding us. And it's, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going it's to it's be painful at times, but his hand has never left us. His hand is always upon us, pressing us and molding us and forming us and and shaping us. And at times we don't like it, but we realize that his hand has never left us. And then he begins to form us into this image that is like him. As we give ourselves to God in his mercy, he begins to shape even our thoughts. I just want to call us today, church, to, to that, to see the mercy of God, to present ourselves. God, have all of me, have all of me. Not just my responses to people, not just my reputation, not just my, my behavior, not just my sin and, and managing those things, but say, God, in view of your mercy, have all of me to come before God and to be renewed in our mind. There must be something to the mind that causes transformation. There must be something about our mind and our thoughts that actually determine how we live. You know, I'm a golfer. You guys, many of you, you know, most of you guys know that. And, and so when I used to play golf, <clears throat> and, uh, and I remember in my early years when I would start to kind of try to get the basics of the golf swing down, my dad would notice my head kind of swaying back and forth, left and right, up and down. And one of the things about golf is that, you know, you gotta, they'll tell you you got to keep your head still. But my head was moving all over the place. And so, you know, what my dad would do is he would literally grab me by my hair and he said, now swing. And I would swing and I would feel my head moving one way and then another way. I'm like, Dad, this is not North Korea, right? Like, we're in the United States, you can't, like, this looks like abuse, right? But he would literally, in public, in the golf range, he would grab my hair like this, and said, now swing. And I would hit uh, hundreds of golf balls, buckets and buckets, where I would just practice keeping my head still. Why? Because I realized that eventually that paid off, because where my head was determined where my swing would go. Where my head was determined where the ball would go. It changed everything. I don't know if you guys play golf, but you guys know that sometimes when you're on the golf course, 
There, there's, there's some challenging courses where there's, there's bunkers, there's sand, and there's water all along the hole, right? And so I remember being in tournaments where, you know, there's, there's more challenging courses where uh, just water on almost every hole, you know, lakes and, and, and rivers and, uh, and just, just big body of water. And you're looking on the tee box, you're looking out to the green, you're looking out to the hole, and you're looking out and you're seeing all of this water on one side, you know, uh, on maybe the right side. And so you're, you're, you go to the tee box and you tell yourself, whatever you do, whatever you do, do not hit it to the water. And so I remember as a kid being in a tournament, telling myself on that tee box, there's people watching me, my dad's watching, James, make sure you do not hit it to the water. Make sure you do not hit it to the right side. Make sure the ball does not go there. And you know what happens? As I go and tee up my ball and I take my swing And where does the ball go? To the right side. It goes to the water. And I learned the lesson later that I had the wrong mindset. My coach would tell me, James, don't put your mind on where you're supposed to not go. Put your mind on where you're supposed to go. He said, James, the next time you're on the tee box, don't say don't hit it to the water. Don't focus on the water that you're trying to stay away from. Focus on the target that you're trying to go to. And he said, once you do that, you're going to see that the very thing that you're trying to stay away from starts to fade away. And I I realized how powerful that is. That even with golf, that that your body will follow your mind. That your body starts to follow whatever your mind is full of and what your mind is set on. Paul is saying, for those of us that want real change, stop trying to think about what you're not supposed to do. And that's not, he's saying, that's not the point. Put your mind on where you're supposed to go. And where you're supposed to go is to see Jesus more clearly, to see his mercy more clearly, to see what is done for you on our behalf. And go in that direction where your mind is upon him. Don't put your mind on just things that you're not supposed to do, but put your mind on Christ, who is altogether beautiful, altogether glorious. And he's saying, that's what God wants to do with you. So church, I ask you again, lately, where has your mind been? What has your mind been full of? And what's your mind set on? My prayer is that in this particular moment that you would sense the Lord drawing you back to him to see his mercy, to see his love, and that you would give him your whole self, that you would not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be renewed or transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you could bow your heads.